I remember when you kept your sweaters in the stove. I remember when your hair was black. In the revival series, and just like that, Sex in the City has transformed into Death in the City. It's haunted by numerous losses, both literal and figurative. The revival opens with dialogue about the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember when we had to legally stand six feet apart from one another? Yeah, I miss it. And the episode begins and ends with two incredibly major character deaths. The first scene rushes to explain why Samantha is missing from the iconic foursome. She's no longer with us. No, 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 she didn't die. She's in London. She's not literally dead, but later, Carrie and Miranda admit that to them, it feels like she is. It is kind of like she's dead, Samantha. We never even talk about her. And in the episode's final moments, major spoiler alert here, the love of Carrie's life, Mr. Big, once again leaves her behind, taken away once and for all by a heart attack. A downright sinister product placement for Peloton that led to a very weird cross-promotional ad campaign. Should we take another ride? <laughs> and just like that, the world was reminded that regular cycling stimulates and improves your heart, lungs, and circulation. Meanwhile, seeing Stanford on screen may remind viewers of the recent real-life passing of actor Willie Garson. On a subtler level, too, the remaining three leads, Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte, are undergoing feelings of loss for the people they once were. We can't just stay who we were, right? Even the city feels like an entirely different character, no longer inviting and exciting and full of sex, but hostile, harsh, and woke to a degree that leaves the women feeling unnerved and irrelevant. Here's our take on the grim place where Sex and the City catches up with its characters, the message it sends about what it's like for women to grow older, and how the ladies can still resurrect the seemingly joyless, sexless city that was once theirs. And some of us have something we really need to change, and so change! Do it! Change it! Change that shit up! You're not happy with who you are? Step out of that box and change it! If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and click the bell to get notified about all our new videos. This is The Take. Let's take the tropes home with us. We are so excited to announce that we now have a line of Weird Girl merchandise. It's not just a question of, am I the weird girl? You have to ask yourself, which weird girl am I? Are you the dreamy space cadet living on your own planet? Are you the delightfully spiraling basket case? Are you the ferocious goth? Are you the awkward misfit? Are you the smartass? I think there's power in owning the weird girl in all of us. You can now express it through posters, mugs, a backpack, t-shirts. Wear it on your sleeve. Announce that you are the weird girl. We had so much fun conceptualizing these characters and drawing from our favorite weird girls of film and TV to create our vision of the five types. One of our favorite designs is this beautiful line art rendering of the weird girl. She's got the iconic goth visual. It just looks great whether you're doing a cute backpack, a hoodie, you can grab a tote or a poster with all of the weird girls. Or another approach is to mix and match. So you grab your space cadet water bottle, your misfit hoodie, and your basket case poster behind you. I love these shirts. It's also super soft. Like it's really, very soft. I really yeah. feel like I could it's live really in this. Quite like, click the link in the description below to order from Spring right now and get the best possible deals on your merch. Put your order in right away to get it before the holidays. To the weird girl. To the weird girls in all of us. Which weird girl are you? Well, who is it even from?
they can stay. It's been extensively reported that actress Kim Cattrall was not interested in returning for Sex and the City, and the revival's approach is to go on the offensive and resolve viewer questions about this ASAP. She moved to the UK for work. After this explanation, within the first 10 minutes, the ladies speak about Samantha again and offer more exposition as to why their friendship unraveled. I told her that because of, you know, what the book business is now, it just didn't make sense for me to keep her on as a publicist. She said fine and then fired me as a friend. But for a show with the takeaway that your girlfriends are forever, Samantha's being gone feels like a loss not just of one character, but of the dream of eternal female friendship. I always thought the four of us would be friends forever. The mundanity of their falling out makes it worse, suggesting that any besties can become estranged over basically nothing and without any very dramatic gestures to save the friendship. Multiple texts and nothing. Okay. Well, then I guess that's all we can, you know, do. But perhaps the most glaring way that Samantha's absence is felt is in the resulting absence of sex. As we said in our video about Samantha, according to Saros's Sex in the City by the Numbers article, in the original run, Samantha featured in a whopping 40 of the series' 96 total sex scenes. And whereas the other characters could be pretty traditional, she was the one who actually delivered plots that pushed sexual boundaries and mores of her era. In this future, the other three ladies are even less interested in sex, and they have to bring up Miranda's son in order to have content for their usual sex banter over brunch. I stepped on a used condom in Brady's room this morning. As Vulture's review wrote, I couldn't help but wonder, where is the sex? I mean, no sex for years. Are we a couple or just roommates with ice cream and a kid? After Samantha, what would happen with Big was probably the biggest question on viewers' minds about the revival. In recent years, many have criticized the rom-com-esque ending of the original series, where Big and Carrie at last united in a fairy tale conclusion. Carrie, you're the one. Viewers argued that Big was toxic, and even show creator Darren Starr felt the conclusion betrayed the story's core ethos of female independence. For me, the show is really about um, the fact that women don't need to be defined by men or by marriage. So some wondered if, in this future, Big and Carrie would be divorced or on the rocks. Instead, Big has become the dream partner Carrie saw the potential for in his best moments. Tonight is Todd Rundgren. Oh, that's my favorite album. You know you've said that about pretty much every album since we started this little dinner ritual. And this once womanizer who dated models and celebrities for status now makes Carrie feel so secure that the two can make jokes about him wanting his Peloton instructor. I'll be spending the night at home with Allegra. Oh, her again. But yet again, Carrie's romantic happiness with Big is cut short, this time forever. Big's heart attack makes us recall the memorable episode The Domino Effect. When Big has heart surgery and he and Carrie bond deeply, imagining committing to each other for good. I'm talking about us. Life's too short. What are we doing? Now they're living that intimate future, but his heart gets in the way one last time. Not metaphorically, as was always the case before. Big's heart had closed again. Maybe it would reopen in another five years, maybe it wouldn't. But in an all-too-real medical sense, it's a conclusion that suddenly makes Carrie's and Big's countless relationship conflicts fade into the past like trivial details. Let's not pick at each other anymore. We won't 
It's stupid and petty and not important. And it's also a writing solution to the Mr. Big saga, which had come to feel like a trap the franchise couldn't escape, given how many viewers criticized him, while others were totally attached to Biggs and Carrie's happily ever after. Just keep reminding myself that at least we were happy. At the end, it helps. Happy said. But it's interesting to imagine if the series had done the reverse with its two major deaths, had Samantha actually die and get the hagiographic treatment, and Big move to London. The way the episode wrote it creates an odd deification of the guy who took a long time deciding if Carrie was good enough for him. Am I the only one that remembers what a prick he was to her? And a marginalization and near vilification of the woman who most embodied the sex part of Sex in the City. I understand that she was upset, but I thought I was more to her than an ATM. So, when in the third episode, when Big still manages to get under Carrie's skin from beyond the grave by leaving money to his ex-wife Natasha, there's almost something reassuring about how it restores her to the old Carrie. The sixth stage of grief is stalking. Who's consumed with insecurities about her relationship with the old Big. I almost forgot how I used to feel all those years ago, you know, so nervous and insecure and desperate. Like, I wasn't enough who in turn is always just a little disappointing and a lot mysterious as a partner. The single photo I found in his wallet is of a dog he never even mentioned. In the end, Carrie feels the closure she needed to feel that her romance with Big was true soulmate love. Classic John, just always a puzzle. I'll never understand why he ever married me when he was always in love with you. But when Mrs. Preston leaves behind Big's apartment to go back to her old place, there's a sense that it's this individual person, outside of the blissful romance with Big, now post-Happy Ever After, who's freed up to get back to being the real Carrie. And just like that, I walked myself home. That's not who you are. Well, we can't stay who we were, right? In Candace Bushnell's off-Broadway one-woman show, Is There Still Sex in the City? She jokes that most of her actual girlfriends inspiring her columns were like Samantha. And just like that's lack of Samantha, or in the opening episodes, any Samantha-like characters with much interest in sex, feels as if the show is almost mourning an era of female sexual voraciousness, desire, and sex positivity. I'm a trisexual. I'll try anything once. As the New York Times put it, while the original show was about getting, getting success, getting rich, getting lucky, and just like that is riddled with loss. Are Steve and I even a couple anymore? The revival is most interesting when it delves honestly into the perils of aging for women. The ladies debate whether it's wrong to try to pass for younger, both in superficial ways like hair color. Carrie dyes her hair too. Yeah, but hers is obvious. You're trying to pass. And in career ways like new media. Instagram, podcast, I guess you're passing as younger too. Aging women are at a striking disadvantage in our society, but while the women getting older story is becoming its own subgenre, with Julie Delpy's On the Verge being a strong example of how funny it can be, this kind of story tends to be very targeted in its marketing only toward its specific demographic. Through Sex and the City's big legacy audience, and just like that, has the chance to center a portrait of women getting older for the larger mainstream. At the same time, as many have pointed out, the series has always been about rich white women, and in a 180 from the wildly out-of-touch Sex and the City 2, Condoms, yes! Condoms! I have sex! 
the revival bends over backwards to correct itself and hold its characters accountable for their privilege. But it's precisely when the series is trying to be current that it feels most off the cultural pulse, with a series of woke moments WOKE MOMENT so cringy that they feel unnecessarily mean to the characters. Miranda's terrible word vomit toward her black professor. My comment had nothing whatsoever to do with it being a black hairstyle. I, I knew that you were black when I signed up for this class. Feels out of character, making her, as The Guardian observed, the idiot she has never been. Each of the three remaining main characters is now mirrored by a woman of color who matches her personality. Give that to Black Charlotte. Yet a large part of these characters' role in the story seems to be helping the three leads get over their awkward white person anxieties and be themselves again. Stop talking and just breathe. Still, the writing has some moments of honestly representing how cultural shifts have unsettled older generations, and how for older professional women, these questions of fading relevance or graying hair can be confidence-destroying. I think I was just so worried about saying the wrong thing in this climate that I said all the wrong things. The city has always been a main character in the show. New York City is really the fifth character. But it no longer feels like it belongs to the central friends. The women are on the defensive, still perfectly styled, but lacking their old boldness, somewhat mournful that they can't be just like they were. Intentionally or not, the show expresses an anxiety that these women, and by extension their narrative, aren't relevant, no longer leading the feminist charge and shaping the discourse, but feeling they have to grasp for scraps of cultural capital. The opening image of the revival is the three women waiting for a table, while others are served around them with more urgency. The shift of Carrie's old catchphrase, I couldn't help but wonder, to the new, and just like that, gets at the feeling plaguing the characters, like the rug's been lifted out from under them. And just like like that, they died. This anxiety of irrelevance has been seized on by critics. The Ringer, for example, titled its review, Our Culture Has Moved Past Sex in the City. But their sad starting point is a call to action to the ladies. I say this with love, you better step your up. I'm gonna step my up. For Miranda to shake things up, for Charlotte to be the radically loving and accepting mother she always wanted to be, and for Carrie to reinvent, rediscover, and reconnect with that bold, edgy, sexy writer she once was and can be again. You had a column about sexuality in a mainstream newspaper in the 1990s. You're the OG. We are so excited to announce that we now have a line of Weird Girl merchandise. You can now express it through t-shirts, posters, mugs, a backpack, wear it on your sleeve. There's power in owning the Weird Girl in all of us. Announce that you are the Weird Girl. Make sure to order now to get it before the holidays.